Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University. Today I am with Dr. Yuan Yuan Ang. She is Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. We met her already in 2019 for another podcast. This time she is with us for a great new book. This, the title is China's Gilded Age. It was published by Cambridge University Press in May 2020. Yuan, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak with you and to be on your podcast a second time. Well, I hope there will be maybe a third time. Uh, <laughs> thank I you for... I would be delighted, but yeah. <laughs> I usually ask about the origin of the books that we discuss, uh, but I remember that when we spoke in summer 2019 about the previous one, which is how China escaped the poverty trap. Then, on page 42, somehow you anticipated the theme of this book, China's Gilded Age. And your point is that contrary to conventional wisdom that rich nations become rich by first eliminating corruption, the real history is that corruption, in fact, is never truly eliminated. It just changes in form and structure as the economy becomes richer and itself itself changes its structure. So maybe to start, please tell us about what you mean with corruption and what about the terminology that you use, for example, the petty theft, grand theft, speed money, and access money classification, and also how this is different from many other typologies on corruption. Oh, thank you very much with uh, starting on the origins of this book. China's Gilded Age is a sequel to my first book, which was called How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. And that first book um, was an attempt to understand what is the relationship between economic growth and institutions. And normally, the conventional wisdom tells us that first you must have good institutions like rule of law and eradication of corruption before it is possible to have economic growth. And in that first book, I find that, well, that kind of linear thinking does not hold in reality. And in fact, the economy and institutions co-evolve over time. And it normally begins, in fact, with uh, what are normatively weak or wrong institutions. So in one part of that first book, I had a page where I was grappling with the question of what is the relationship between corruption and capitalism? And again, the conventional wisdom tells us that the way rich countries became rich is that first they eradicated corruption, they had good governance, and therefore growth took off. But when you actually look at the evidence, what I find it that's not the case. The reality is that as the economy took off and grew, corruption did not disappear. It only changed in form and structure, and specifically, it became more sophisticated. 
So on page 42 in my first book, I use the term speed money and access money. Speed money means the type of corruption, the petty bribes you pay to overcome regulatory hurdles. And access money stands for a different type of corruption where you pay privileges to get special deals um, uh, and, and uh, monopolistic rights. Uh, so in on page 42, you know, I had just a, a, a very brief insight that um, as capitalism takes off and mature, corruption evolves from speed money to access money, meaning its structure changed. And so that was really the origins of the second book. Um, and I took that inside and, and fleshed it out into a whole book, uh, focusing still on, on China, because there's this obvious paradox of vast corruption and economic boom. But there is also a comparative chapter in the book where I used my typology of corruption and unbundled different types of corruption across 15 countries so that we can actually visually see that different countries have different structures of corruption and that even two countries with identical amounts of total perceived corruption can in fact have divergent structures and these structures have consequences. But the argument in this book um, has been uh, a few times taken out of context and uh, somebody gave a meaning close to corruption is good for growth. Instead, it seemed to me that you meant that not all types of corruption carry the same arm, the same type of arm and the same powerful arm, and they have a different impact on growth at least. Can you, can you please clarify your view on the impact of corruption in China and also elsewhere, because this book is not only about China? Certainly. Let me uh, first... Uh, describe my typology of corruption and uh, the argument that I'm making. So the overall theory of this book is that we need to go beyond this idea of corruption as a monolith, as a problem that we can measure from zero to 100 on a single scale. And this is the way corruption is conventionally measured in indices like the Corruption Perception Index, or CPI. And what I show in this book is that we need to unbundle corruption into qualitatively different types. I offer four categories in my book. Now, the first dimension that I emphasize is whether this corruption involves theft or exchange. Right? So corruption involving theft is a one-way street, and only the corrupt official benefits and no one else does. So this type of corruption is unambiguously and directly harmful. So you can think about two different types of corruption with theft. The first is petty theft. So um, a policeman shaking you down for an extortion. That's a petty theft. You can also think about grand theft. So embezzlement of billions of dollars out of state funds into Swiss bank accounts. So that's corruption with theft. And then I distinguish that from corruption with exchange, where that corruption involves a, an exchange of benefits between two parties that creates benefits beyond for one corrupt official. And in that category, I distinguish between speed money, which is petty bribes you pay 
to overcome regulatory hurdles, delays, and so forth, and access money. Access money is uh, transactional, it's elite, it's high stakes. And oftentimes in developed economies like the US or the UK, access money can actually become highly institutionalized and even legalized. And that's why we don't talk about it, we don't notice it, and it's not being measured and captured in global indices. Most of our attention when we talk about corruption is poor country corruption. So we are fixated on petty bribery and embezzlement. And granted, these are important types of corruption that we must highlight and fight. But what I'm arguing is that we've really neglected the category of access money. So what I argue in the book is that if you look at these four types of corruption that I've highlighted to you, they have different economic consequences. You cannot treat them as the same thing. So corruption with theft, along with speed money, all of these types of corruption are directly impeding um, of growth. They impede economic activities. They drain public and private wealth. So normally when we think about corruption, as being bad for growth, we are actually talking about these three types of corruption. But I um, highlight and emphasize that the fourth type of corruption, which I call access money, actually is a double-edged sword. It can actually stimulate commercial activity because it rewards the politicians and the capitalists to come together to do more business. But at the same time, it produces some serious risk and inequalities. And these problems do not explode until um, some type of crisis happens. So examples include the Asian financial crisis of 1997, which was attributed to crony capitalism, and the 2008 financial crisis, which in large part was the result of uh, extreme deregulation and state capture. So, um, so when we understand these four different types of corruption and their different economic consequences, we have a much more nuanced understanding of the relationship between corruption and capitalism. And let me give you just a simple analogy to help remember these four types that I've talked about. Corruption with theft is what I would call toxic drugs. So you can think of them as being equivalent to cocaine, you know, drugs that unambiguously hurt you. Uh, speed money, petty bribes, think of them as painkillers, right? Drugs that help you overcome an annoyance, but it doesn't help you grow muscles. Access money is what I call the steroids of corruption, right? Steroids are called growth enhancing drugs. They stimulate growth, but they come with serious side effects that do not show up until your health completely collapses. So that is the framework that I introduce to help us unbundle corruption and the different types of corruption. And then getting back to your original question, Andrea, because in this book, I contest the conventional wisdom that all corruption hurts growth. Um, it is some people have taken this argument out of context and they 
and they simply conclude that, oh, you know, Ang is arguing that corruption is good, and they run with this argument. Um, and 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 what they ignore is my message that all all corruption is harmful, and access money is also harmful. But this form of corruption can actually stimulate growth, and at the same time produce serious risk and inequality down the road. The analogy, the analogy with drugs is very clear. But I wonder if uh, the reason why we are you are taken out of context can be China itself, because there are so many structural stereotypes about China that perhaps it is more difficult to address complex topics when China is involved. Yeah, you know, I think that that is such a good point. And I've been thinking about this question. I would love to hear what you think as well. But I thought it would be useful for me to share um, an anecdote of being taken out of context. So I had this interview where I was introducing um, the, the, my typology of corruption. And on access money, I said that this form of corruption, access money, has stimulated growth and investment, but at the same time brings serious risk, both economic and political. And then what happened after the interview is that the editor only took out the first half of my argument and specifically highlighted the words stimulated growth and and put it in bold and then stuck it next to you know, a picture, a flashy picture of Chinese infrastructure. So that when you look at the magazine, it says, you know, corruption, uh, stimulated growth. And, and that's the only thing you'll remember. And so, so literally my argument, which had two parts, was simply cut into half and only one half of it uh, was highlighted. Um, and, 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 I'm, and I'm relating this incident um, not to complain, I, I I thank you know the editor for for the interview, and and to their credit, as soon as I voiced my concerns, uh, they made corrections. Uh, but I did ask sort of you know why you know why did you cut half of the argument, and and, and the reply was that this is more interesting, and and so I thought that this is an instructive example of how I think in general we have become. It has become very difficult for for people to accept and digest arguments that have two sides, right? We have, I think, become so um, habituated to listening to extreme arguments. And as soon as there is an argument that is on the one hand and on the other hand, we are bored by it, right? We want something that's very kind of extreme and dramatic and one-sided. So I think there is this general media culture or information culture where we have become habituated to one-sided arguments and we reject two-sided arguments. And then on top of that, as you pointed out, I think when the subject matter is China in particular, perhaps it really does make it worse. There is a tendency, a very strong tendency to see China as a monolith, right? Um, There is also, I think, um, a a tendency to um, uh, have 
these stereotypes about China, as you described. Uh, I remember one time being at uh, one of those media training workshops where they had one kind of senior commentator uh, come to us to give advice. And his advice was always talk about China with a big C, meaning, you know, don't talk about the nuances within it, don't talk about the regional differences, don't talk about the differences over time, just talk about China with a big C because that's what everyone is interested in. Um, So I think perhaps when you combine this tradition of seeing China as a monolith with our dislike of arguments with two sides, what you get is, you know, um, people just walking away with, oh, she's saying corruption is good for growth. And, and that argument is, is, is much more interesting uh, for us. But that's unfortunate because it really distracts from uh, the key messages of the book, which is that all corruption is harmful. And this particular type of rich country corruption can be stimulating for growth but brings about all of the problems that we now see and and worry about in advanced capitalist economies. This is very interesting. I think that also the problem might not only be with the media only, but probably in some cases also with some of our academic colleagues. And in this case, it is even worse. Anyway, let's move out of China for a second. Um, Corruption is a complex phenomenon. And you argue that we fail to understand it when we adopt a one-dimensional measure. So you agree with other scholars that corruption is endemic in the West, for example, but just in different forms. Uh, I would like to ask you in general, so not only about China, what is the state of research in economics, in political science, in sociology on corruption as a phenomenon? Um, corruption is a really big and um, productive field in political science and economics. And I would say particularly in the last decade, there has been tremendous advances in using experimental methods and very smart forensics techniques. So one book that I particularly like is called Economic Gangsters by Fisman and Miguel. And it's a popular summary of the forensics techniques that they employ to to try to measure the existence of corruption. And one of the biggest challenges for anyone studying corruption is that it's a secretive activity, right? It's it's meant to be uh, hidden. It's something that's uh, hard to observe, that that officials will not uh, acknowledge. And so um, to be able to prove that it exists and measure it is is really um, is is an, an important milestone. So uh, there have been some really uh, interesting methods to do so. You know, there's some economists who look at the gap, for instance, between uh, imports and exports to try to uh, discern if there is smuggling going on. For example. So I think in this area of microforensics, tremendous advances have been made. Um, But um, from my point of view, I think that there is still one giant gap in the study of corruption, which is that until now, we still don't have a better alternative for cross-national measures of corruption. 
right? So when we look for cross-national measures of corruption, we rely almost entirely on indices like the CPI, which is produced by Transparency International. There are other options like the World Bank's Control of Corruption Index. Uh, They all have one commonality, which is they measure corruption as a one-dimensional problem. So every country has a score from zero to 100. Um, And there are many um, existing criticisms about the flaws of these indices, uh, in addition to really dumbing down the concept of corruption. Uh, all of these indices are actually, uh, they're not in-house surveys. They are actually just gathered and combined from third-party surveys. So they have no control over the survey design. And so despite all of these flaws, which many other people have talked about, uh, including the founder of the CPI himself, who has come out to say, you know, the index is flawed, and I think it it's time that we stop uh, relying solely on it, uh, we continue to use them. We continue to use them because there is no better alternatives. And I can't stress enough the influence of these indices, despite their flaws. Um, These corruption indices are used by academics to run regressions and produce hundreds and hundreds of empirical papers. Uh, They're used by risk analysts to measure risk and make major decisions on things like loans, uh, sovereign risk, uh, interest rates, borrowings, and so forth. Um, They're also packed to Uh, foreign aid. So some categories of foreign aid are distributed based on a country score on on corruption. And so what I try to do in this book, um, even though it's mainly focused on China, is I felt it was really necessary to have that comparative component, like someone has to try to at least make an attempt to provide an alternative measure of corruption across countries. So that is why in um, chapter um, two of the book, um, I focus on describing uh, my pilot attempt at creating the Unbundled Corruption Index, or the UCI. And what I do in this index is that I measure corruption not just on a single scale, but in the four categories that I have described. So it is an expert survey. And instead of asking these experts the broad question of, you know, how corrupt is South Korea? uh, I break down the questions uh, and I use a stylized vignette approach so that their answers are accurate. And we measure their perceptions of the prevalence of each of the four types of corruption across country. And once we have this as a pilot, then I think it provides a foundation and room for improving such an index. And I hope that someone will do it, will pick it up and do it much better than I have so that we can go beyond relying solely on the likes of CPI, and really start um, doing empirical tests that looks at the effects of structures of corruption 
rather than just its total perceived level. Very interesting. Well, so you raised an example of uh, simplification, oversimplification in academic research, and this is a big problem. So to remain on the methods, uh, um, you built for this book a database with hundreds of party leaders and bureaucrats and their fate. And we learn about the so-called tigers and flies, as Chairman Xi Jinping would call them. Um, can, tell us more about how you built, how you collected uh, your, your data and whether it was difficult to, to do it, so to deal with the controversial topic in China. Yeah, corruption is um, a, a controversial and sensitive topic in any context. But the way I deal with it is that we just have to keep in mind that I am doing writing this book as a scholar and not as an investigative journalist. So when an investigative journalist studies corruption, they're looking for some exclusive scoop, right? They're trying to dig up dirt about some politician. But that's not what we do as scholars. What we try to do is to provide uh, structural explanations uh, to explain and document patterns. And so w- once we focus on that perspective, then it is not as you know, sensitive as some people might think. And even for the Chinese government, corruption is not something that is um, a secret. In fact, President Xi Jinping has made anti-corruption one of his two signature domestic policies. Anti-corruption is one, and poverty alleviation is the second one. So he's been very open that corruption is an existential problem for the party and the nation. Um, And so there has been a lot of uh, attention being put on corruption. So I approach the the topic from this perspective, focusing on my role as a scholar, focusing on what are the structural patterns that I can show through my research. So the particular chapter that you mentioned about the tiger's Uh, and flies is, I think, is the chapter about the anti-corruption campaign. And um, this I find to be a really fascinating political episode in China because under Xi, he has launched the most vigorous anti-corruption campaign in the party's history. And by 2018, um, 1.5 million officials have been subject to discipline. Um, So a lot of people have speculated about the corruption. uh, And what I wanted to do as a scholar is to use the best available evidence to answer some questions. So in that chapter, the question that I ask is, uh, of the local leaders who have been investigated for corruption, the term for this is to fall in Chinese. If you're investigated, it means that you've fallen. So of the city leaders in China who have fallen for corruption, you know, what are the most, um, what are the factors that best predicts their fall? Is it their performance or is it their patronage? And so in answering this question, it is actually possible to use available data. So we collected, of course, we had to do the data collection ourselves, uh, look for the names and the CVs of all of these city leaders 
uh, look for records of whether they have been investigated, and then look for uh, the characteristics that we wanted to measure about them. So in particular, I was interested in measures of their performance in economic growth, for instance. We wanted to measure their media profile, whether these were high-profile individuals who were always on the news. I also wanted to look at their patronage ties, meaning who was the higher-level official who appointed them and what happens when their boss falls, right? And the short answer to this analysis is that the single and really the only factor that predicts whether an official falls or survives uh, the campaign is patronage. It's whether the boss who appointed them himself fell for corruption or is being protected. And performance has no predictive uh, factor um, in this analysis. So this has important implications. It tells us that the Chinese bureaucracy under this campaign and under this new precedent is moving away from being performance-oriented and being much more patronage-focused. Um, well, in in fact, talking about bureaucracy, uh, there is a section in your book, uh, the title is Chinese Bureaucracy 101, and there you argue that uh, we make a common mistake uh, because we commonly use uh, public administration theories, uh, and they are, they are based on, first of all, historical notions, but also Western-centered principles. And this doesn't work for China, but also doesn't work elsewhere. But to move on, uh, I wanted to ask you about the comparative approach that uh, you have adopted in this book. So what is your message when you compare China with other similar or dissimilar nations? I'm really glad you asked that. Um, I, um, I find that I learn so much more when I adopt a comparative historical approach. And I am of an advocate that we should not think about China in isolation. Uh, that is really common both in academic writing and even more so in popular media commentary about China. Uh, Western observers tend to talk about China you know, kind of in isolation, uh, reinforcing this message that you know, the country is so weird and so exceptional that you know, we can't really wrap our heads around it. And I think it also really doesn't help that from the Chinese side, the dominant Chinese narratives coming from China is also um, about China in isolation. So the Chinese side likes to say that China is you know, so exceptional. We have 5,000 years of history that you can't possibly understand us. Whereas from the Western side, the message is China is so weird that we can't possibly understand it. So I don't think that that is helpful at all. And it creates this false divide. And as a scholar, what I want to do is when you put China in comparative perspective, a lot of things become much clearer. So to give one example, in my book, I compare China and India. Both are developing countries. Both are really large. Both are notorious for corruption. And if you look at the CPI index, China and India almost always next to each other. They have identical CPI scores. 
Um, but when we actually compare them and, and look at their structures of corruption, we learn something interesting. We learn that in China, the most dominant type of corruption is access money. So elite transactional corruption linked to economic activities. Whereas in India, the most dominant type of corruption is speed money. So petty bribes that businesses have to pay, they have to pay bribes for 70 licenses to even set up a shop. And, and so we see this divergence in the structure of corruption. And why is that? <clears throat> One of the reasons that I speculate is that it, it has to do with differences in political system. In China, because power is concentrated in the hands of a few individuals, corruption primarily takes the form of paying for their access and for the special deals that they can give you. Whereas in India, because it's a fragmented democracy, that power comes from the ability to block businesses, to block decisions. So corruption is being paid to overcome all of these obstacles that the bureaucracy throws in the way of business. And so once we put these two countries in comparative perspective, then we can better understand that in China, the kind of corruption dominates is the kind where corruption is linked to doing more business. Whereas in India, that kind of corruption is linked to corruption that blocks you from doing business. So this is one helpful way of doing comparative research. Um, another sort of major comparison that I make in the book, which is explicit in the title itself, is a comparison between China's Gilded Age and America's Gilded Age. That is why this book is called China's Gilded Age. And by making this comparison, what I wanted to show is that we need to think about both the ways China is obviously different from the U.S. This is something that everyone knows. But we also need to keep in mind that these two uh, countries actually share many structural similarities, but at different time points. So America's Gilded Age was a time that happened in the 19th century, when the U.S. was still a developing country, an emerging market. Uh, it was at the time the factory of the world and the dominant power, the hegemon of the 19th century was the United Kingdom. And the America's Gilded Age, sorry, and the America's Gilded Age is a story of um, basically of, of re renewal after complete devastation. And so this is very similar to China after market reform where market reforms were launched after 30 years of devastation under Mao. So when you look at these two cases, even though the time points are different, you can find many structural similarities, in particular, the coexistence of economic boom and rampant corruption. And so by comparing China and America's Gilded Age, we can see both their similarities, but we can also see the differences. And this helps us to understand China in much deeper light. By the way, I forgot to mention that the book, uh, for those of you about to buy it, is 250 pages long, and it is organized in seven chapters. 
There are also interesting tables and pictures, including, for example, pictures of the fallen party leaders. For example, you just mentioned the mm-hmm. case of Boshilai, an incredible case. Um, the book actually ends with some conclusions in the form of five questions. And then there is a very nice final timely note on the risk of a new Cold War between the United States and China. We just were just over of the American elections. Uh, you argue that the stereotypes and misunderstandings are dangerous because they are fueling commercial and political confrontation. And it is exactly your study on, on corruption and the parallel you make between China's Gilded Age and the American one, for example, it, it, this is explaining how, after all, China is not that exceptional, exotic, and hence dangerous to us. Mm. I'm so glad to, that you ended on this note um, because that is really one of the key messages that I hope to convey in writing China's Gilded Age. I think particularly in this time where we see this new Cold War between China and the U.S., there is an increasing tendency to orientalize China. So I use the term orientalize from uh, Edward Said, right, who wrote uh, this famous uh, book called Orientalism. And, and the, the concept behind it is, is this idea of the West kind of depicting things in the East in this exotic fashion that is meant to alienate uh, rather than to promote understanding, right? It's meant to give this uh, imagery of, oh, look at, you know, these Orientals. They are so weird and they're so exceptional. They're so strange. And it's meant to uh, portray that. And I see this flourishing, re-flourishing of Orientalism during this new Cold War era um, in, in large part because... Um, the West has always found China kind of mysterious and, and, and hard to understand. And, and again, I say China helps to reinforce this perception by, you know, going on and on about its 5,000 years of history and, and refusing to actually have a different narrative about commonalities between societies and nations. And so, um, for example, in this um, in one of these books that I read uh, recently uh, about China's threat to the West, uh, it described China as you know having this five thousand years of history where deception is built into the Chinese culture, and and he gives as evidence you know if you read Sun Tzu's Art of War, you know Sun Tzu talks about deception. And then he refers to the Chinese game of Go and says, you know, Go is a game about deception. And, and, and frankly, it's complete nonsense. And it is meant to create this oriental effect of look how strange the Chinese people are. And it's, I think this kind of rhetoric is particularly powerful and insidious when it's framed as uh, a serious expert analysis. If it's just outwardly racist, I think that actually is less harmful because you can just say, you know, that's a racist statement. But when it's framed in this in this like expert analysis, that's where people read it and actually think, oh, if an expert says that, that must be real. China truly is so weird, you know, and they have deception built into their culture. And so I wanted to challenge that stereotype in this book. And so if you look at the final chapter, uh, I open with a story about America's Gilded Age, 
except that I changed the names of the characters from Americans to Chinese. And, and that exercise is meant to really get readers to, to, to think about their own stereotypes and, and to ask if they have double standards. And, and I once gave this presentation uh, where I started with this anecdote and, and the audience, which was Amer- uh, which were a group of Americans, they, uh, they truly were, were shocked. I mean, you can see the faces of shock on their face. Uh, you can actually hear a gasp in the air. You know, when, when I reveal that this story is actually American and not Chinese. Uh, and so it makes some people really uncomfortable when their stereotypes are being challenged. Uh, but I hope that some people will actually welcome that exercise. Uh, we need that. We, 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 need, um, we need to have uh, research and scholarship uh, that challenges our stereotypes. That's, that's what art is supposed to do. That's what science is supposed to do. And, and I think what I wanted to say is that if you really take history seriously and you look past these stereotypes, you'll find that the fact is that societies are common in certain ways, but they're different in, in others. And if we really want to understand China, even to compete constructively with it, to cooperate with China if necessary, then we really need to move beyond double standards and stereotypes and, and, and have a much more nuanced understanding of, of the ways in which this country is similar to, but also different from the countries in which we live in. Thank you very much. And this was a bit of a spoiler, but I'm sure still uh, our <laughs> listeners will buy the book. <laughs> yes, um, I, I, I would have rather not spoil the ending, but hopefully they, <laughs> the readers might, might you know, appreciate the underlying motivation better. Thank you very much. We look forward to reading your next book about China or something else. But in the meantime, congratulations for this great book, China's Gilded Age, published by Cambridge University Press. We spoke with Dr. Yuan Yuanang, Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan. Thank you very much, Yuan. Thank you very much.